Welcome to the Leadership Lounge, a restorative space for women who embrace leading and learning. Each episode is brought to you by the TurkNet Leadership Group and hosted by me, Anne Quiello. I'm an executive coach and leadership development consultant. You're going to want to stay tuned for inspiring and informative interviews with experts in leadership, and especially if you're seeking to be the very best version of who you want to be as a leader. We'll start each episode with a segment we call Beyond Theory, where we'll gather around this table and talk about leadership character, sharing personal experiences, stories, and lessons learned. We won't shy away from the messy side of leadership, the moments when character was tested, or the invaluable lessons from failure. Through unscripted dialogue, we'll bring to light the reality of leadership character and how it shows up in the world. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage, find a cozy spot, and join us as we embark on this journey together. I wanted to ask you a real question because I am in the early portion of my career and a lot of my friends are struggling with finding the purpose within the work that they're doing right now. Because sometimes when you're working your way up to exactly the ideal work that you'd like to see yourself doing, in between you might find yourself in roles where you cannot specifically identify how am I really making an impact here? So I'd wanted to hear a little bit more from you about the work that you do as a consultant and as a coach. Do you think you're making an impact with your work? Mm. Well, wow, what a great question. It it sort of implies that, first of all, I have a real, I have clarity around what my meaning is or my purpose is. and. I wish I had gotten that sense of meaning and purpose much earlier in life than I did when I started out on my career. I think there's so many possibilities in front of us all today that there weren't when I started um, that it's even more difficult to find that purpose and that meaning. Fortunately, I'm at that place in my life and on my journey where I do feel like I have discovered what is my real purpose. And um, purpose can transcend work, of course. I have a faith that says, you know, my whole purpose is, is to serve others and to serve my God. So there's that purpose. Um, and then how that's translated into my work is that sense of serving others. Um, And so when I think about working as a coach, it's really about helping others become the very best version of themselves possible. And I spend such a short time with each person, but in that short period of time, whatever I can do to help them to uncover their purpose and their meaning and their vision for who they want to be as a leader in their very best version, then I feel like, oh, great. I've, I've, I've been able to um, 
with the help of the good Lord, been able to help, uh, hopefully help others to uh, find their own sense of purpose and meaning and impact. I feel what like- about, go ahead. Sorry, because when you're talking about that, it feels like your job is to be an activator. You know, mm. your job is to activate the things that already exist in that person, allow them to see that so that they can launch, you know, so you're not actually doing the work for them, but you're making them recognize the potential in themselves, that capacity to do the work for themselves. That is just so cool. That is cool. <laughs> well, that is the definition of coaching. Yeah. And I love that word, activator. I may use that and not give you any credit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I love that. Yes, that's exactly what, what it is that I attempt to do. Uh, so what about you? Uh, for myself, for our segment of Beyond the Theory, I wanted to talk a little bit about a person that I feel like is living and breathing as an intersection of leadership and impact, you know, and I think it's really hard these days for us to find that purpose like we were talking about within our work sometimes. And uh, Taylor Ryan was the executive director and the founder of a company called Change Today, Change Tomorrow. She's a social entrepreneur who has been able to launch herself into doing community-centered work that has all, uh, an impact on a high scale, which is crazy for me because I love um, community building. Um, and as somebody who is um, community organized before and still sees themselves as an organizer, I'm really centered on people who care at the grassroots level about the individual beings, less about big projects launching, but more about the individual impact that people, um, real lives are being affected by the work that's done. And Taylor Ryan, it's just the perfect example for this because um, in her company, she recently won a tech award at um, a Kentucky Derby uh, Entrepreneurship Summit. And it's for an app that allows them to help address uh, food waste and global world hunger using networks Mm -hmm. of different uh, food distributors and restaurants and vendors. Not only do I think it's incredibly ingenious, I feel like there are ways for us to build on so many of the most foundational aspects of uh, leadership and bring those qualities pretty much into every facet of what we're doing. Uh, You may not be trying to solve world hunger, but there's a way for you to recognize the people outside of just the transaction that's being met that you can really do the extra stuff to think about and care about. And in the way that Taylor honestly does grassroots campaigning, talking to people on a um, day-to-day basis, hundreds of people to figure out what people need in order to launch projects that affect people on such a large scale. I feel like that is the perfect example of somebody who takes leadership by their reins and then attacks it with this um, fierce focus on how am I making an impact, you know? I wonder how she discovered that that was that was the path she wanted to pursue. Mm. That that particular that became her mission. I, I, that would be an interesting question to ask her. Maybe we can get her on a a future podcast. Uh, so how do you, you know how do you discover your mission? Usually, it's based on early life experiences that draws you into that purpose and that passion and, and becomes your mission. Uh, so. Um, you know, entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders uh, really just inspire me 
on how much courage it takes to have a vision, have a mission, have a purpose, and find that meaning in life through that purpose, um, and then have the courage to pursue it. It's just, uh, that's amazing to me. Exactly. And it's yeah. Mention that because that's exactly what Cindy um, not only has been able to do, but has helped other people do throughout her entire career across industries. And I am just so excited for us to talk to her today. Well, let's do it. Today's program is special for me because I get to talk with a fellow executive coach and a leadership consultant who is really multifaceted, to say the least. Cindy Cheatham is also with TurkNet, the TurkNet Leadership Group, and she centered her career and her purpose on the intersection of leadership and impact. I love that. She's been leading nonprofit organizations in the past and consulting practices. She's been coaching and consulting executives around strategic and business planning, board development, collaboration, and many other areas of developing teams and organizations. She's also developed and facilitated award-winning leadership and coaching programs for entrepreneurs and also nonprofit leaders. She's a frequent speaker and program moderator as an expert on topics including leadership, governance, planning, and social enterprise. And she's also trained in peer-based coaching, which is very interesting to me. And she's also a seasoned facilitator. And much of her expertise comes from her experience serving as the Vice President of Consulting at the Georgia Center for Nonprofits and through management consulting with Bain & Company, where her work included strategic consulting for dozens of companies. Also, as a venture catalyst and Director of Business Development at the Advanced Technology Development Center, a nationally recognized te technology incubator affiliated with Georgia Tech right here in town. There, she coached entrepreneurial leaders on all aspects of their business and leadership and connected them to investors and also value-add resources. Phew, you have been one busy <laughs> woman. So welcome to our podcast. It's an honor. Well, I want to start out uh, going back a little bit in your history. Mm -hmm. um, so you got your MBA from Harvard. Is that yeah. what I understand? How in the world did you land at Harvard? Good question. Um, well, you know, we all, we do the life history interview with Turkneck Leadership Group. We believe in that. And, you know, from a very early age, my dad was the first generation to go to college. He always just, my environment was, was that you can set your mind to anything and go any place, don't have any limits. And so um, it really wasn't in my background or experience. I didn't mix and mingle with those um, types. I grew up, you know, very regular middle class, had a good home. But I was always pursuing challenges and opportunities to grow and lead and did that both in my schoolwork, my sports and so forth. And so then fast forward to college, I have an offer to work on Wall Street and I have an offer to go and do Teach for America in Brooklyn. Really, my story has always been around pursuing hard things, but trying to be a leader and make an impact even from an early age. And uh, instead of taking the the teaching job for Teach for America, I went and taught for a summer and then went to Wall Street. <laughs> While on Wall Street, I was very active in community leadership. Then I got into Harvard. That was then the environment of my peers. That was the, that was the next step that everybody dreamed about. 
I kind of came into my into my radar and I thought, you know, I did some I did some assessment. I did apply, I did get in. I hesitated because working on Wall Street was an adventure. It was a learning curve. You know, I was a history major, you know, going in with mostly finance gurus who had already dreamed of, about working on Wall Street. And I stood my own, but it really wasn't necessarily, it was giving me skill set and a foundation and a set of, you know, living in New York City. I had never visited, you know, I grew up, you know, I didn't, I really hadn't had that experience and the eye opening, you know, dinners at Windows of the World. And, um, so it just opened up a world of opportunity and possibility. Uh, so I decided to delay and spent a year just trying to figure out if that was the right path. There was a, there was a colleague that worked with me that was very community minded. And he said, well, why don't you go work for Ken at New York Cares and see what that's like. So I went and ran the corporate community program at New York Cares and then reapplied. And I spent the year, I worked also for Women's World Banking, which was run by a Harvard MBA. Nancy Berry and this world of micro enterprise converging business, putting some small amount of capital in the hands of women to who are known to reinvest their, their themselves and their income in their families and as a mechanism out of poverty, um, reinforce the fact that business can be a source of good. And then Harvard MBA, Harvard MBA, the mission of Harvard is to to help develop leaders that make a difference in the world. And, mm. and they're sincere about that. You know, my, my business school class had a number of teachers. We had Olympic athlete. We, my husband ended up finding my husband at Harvard. He was a Marine. Um, he and I were in the same section. Yes, it was predominantly still people going into finance and consulting, and, but many entrepreneurs and a number of people that were going into other sectors. And the business school had a social enterprise program, so they were putting their money behind their mouth where case studies on places like Teach for America, a, a, a club, people that decided that they wanted to go directly into nonprofit could get, could get their income matched after business school. So even though I didn't go directly to nonprofit straight from business school, I still spent 15 plus years going into corporate. I saw a pathway of mm -hmm. how the combination of business skills, and unfortunately, even the credibility that sometimes fr comes from playing those sandbox and the contacts that you make and the connections that you make could could help me be a better, better difference maker. Yeah. Sounds like business school was that incubator for your own networking, building that network that's going to be so valuable to you going forward. Mm -hmm. um, how old were you when you were at Harvard? Yeah, Just out of I, curiosity. I, was, uh, I started there when I was 24. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty young. Yeah. And it all began with, it sounds like your father who instilled this strong belief in you mm -hmm. that said, or this mental model that said, I could do anything. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I, had, I had some great coaches. Um, I had some great moments. I mean, I, I hit the winning shot to win the state basketball championship. I had my Hoosiers moment and, 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 you know, <laughs> there were other things that probably, you know, I think Wall Street liked the fact that you know, I was an athlete. There were other mm. things that just also helped me along the way. Uh, mm. But but certainly, yeah, my dad had a big influence and then a great school, some great coaches, some mm -hmm. people that believed in me. Wow. 
Wow, we could go in a multiple multiple directions with that. Uh, so your confidence is amazing at such a young age. That's really what I was uh, focused on there for a moment. But I think we'll explore that a little bit in uh, in a few more um, in a few more minutes. But uh, so you're out, you're off of Wall Street. You're now in the nonprofit world. You did a lot of things um, along the way. But out of all that you accomplished, what would you say was your proudest, most joy-filled moment yeah. or time? Well, I would say that, you know, I've had many, many moments and many opportunities, but, you know, one of the, the at least the paid gigs that was the most um, rewarding was uh, helping to facilitate and work with um, a, a great leaders, both on the board and the executive directors of two refugee-based organizations, um, RISA and Refugee Family Services, it was a big accomplishment because it basically it was a transformation project. And it also put me at the intersection of the convergence of all the accumulated skills that I had developed from the kind of the hard number side of having to model out um, the strategy side of developing a strategic um, framework and, and, and working on all kinds of strategies for businesses and nonprofits, the getting comfortable with the numbers, understanding. Um, I even worked on mergers, uh, having some background and experience of do's and don'ts on that. So everything from the assessment all the way to the implementation. And it was a, it was a joy because the, the, um, the leaders were also the type of growth leaders that both were humble enough to say, we need help. This is a lot of work. We can use an outside perspective. We, you know, we need, um, you know, we're, we're self-confident, but we also value coaches, we value consultants, we value the the uh, the project management and the outside perspective and the leadership. And there are a lot of tricky issues managing two boards trying to come together, two staffs trying to come together. So it really kind of tapped the full world of all the way from hard cure finance that I had done to the softer world of culture and integrating people and dealing with conflict and differences and finding where we can um, where we can focus on the mi mission. And ultimately, the leaders and the boards were both, the strategy was there. You know, one organization was on the front end of, of resettling refugees and doing a fantastic job, but it was a very up and down business because depending on the president, you know, um, President Biden just raised the refugee le levels dramatically. President Trump cut them drastically. So it's an up and down business. And that's their revenue stream. The other organization was on the kind of more once the refugees settled, helping them to um, settle into their community, to help their kids with school, to provide support services so they could start to get on a path to further thriving. RISA wanted to continue to help people move from a, a basic job to a, a job where they could be on a career path. They were both starting to butt heads as they were kind of seeing what the full spectrum of needs are. And instead of instead of competing with one another, they said, let's get together. They had built trust, built a relationship through some partner and collaboration work that they had done. And they put the cl client first and they saw the opportunities to combine an organization that was government funded and with a lot of uncertainty. The strength of refugee family services was philanthropic funding. Um, they also saw the benefit of bringing two somewhat undersized nonprofits together to build a, a more um, scaled nonprofit where they could have a full, complete management team. Many nonprofits are struggling because they have one or two leaders and they have important work. And so 
it was just rewarding from a lot of different perspectives. You're tapping all the different, you know, I've always been a generalist and I love jumping into all kinds of new work. And it really kind of tapped all that um, generalist uh, experience from the organizational development and leadership coaching side to the, some of the hardcore business planning and financial planning side. And it ended up with a vision achieved of, you know, basically the vision was we want to help refugees from the time they come to Hartsfield all the way to citizenship and becoming um, give back citizens. And it was able to combine all that into a vision. They raised uh, several million dollars and it was an ambitious. It was also exciting because many times these nonprofits, they have visions, but they don't put it into a realistic plan. Or even if they do, they don't necessarily um, have the uh, contact skill or even resilience to go out there and raise money. And we were able to make a real strong business case to raise money and able to fund it to not only pay for the cost of integration, but to pay toward the vision of greater impact. Hmm. It seems that that you were the benefit of having two leaders mm -hmm. over each organization being willing to let go mm -hmm. of their ownership of mm -hmm. that of that specific organization mm -hmm. really had to help. Was that did that come as a result of their previous collaboration and trust, or was it something that you had to work on? Well, I mean, to be honest, one of the factors that did benefit is that even though they were both executive directors, one one was um, was seeing herself as comfortable being kind of the chief development officer in the integrated company, hmm. and 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 one was thinking that this may not be for life. You know, I may. So it does help if somebody if you have two capable leaders, but they're sort of who is going to be in charge, and yet there was. A commitment to I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be so egotistical that I can't be a number two. I'm gonna make this work, and then you know I'm I'm also um, likely to to move on in a couple of years, and she did. So that is one of the biggest barriers is that leadership. Where can we find synergies? It did take both of them, and it helped for both of them to be able to stick with it because they both had great skills, great connections. They were able to have the continuity with their board members in the combined board and in the community. They brought that they brought those relationships and those skills together to create a strong organization. So one of one of them uh, did exit after a couple of years after there was an organization that had gotten through that very risky phase of, of post integration. Um, that is a barrier. The barriers that typically make you know one is culture. Just can our cultures work together? Are we both you know, they were both ambitious cultures and humble cultures and very, very focused on the passion of the cause of the refugees. So first and foremost, so they were both self-confident leaders, but humble enough to say we, we were putting the mission at the forefront, capable enough to figure out how to work well with others um, and work through change and not stuck in their ways. They had a lot of great attributes. There was one or two board members that kind of had to depart because the change was very, very hard for them, and that's not a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, that's typical. Yeah. Yeah, so you just brought up a great example of the leadership character model where mm -hmm. there's such a need for that balance between confidence mm -hmm. uh, and humility yeah. and being other-centered. Um, yeah. So 
at the same time. Yeah. So great example. Thank you for bringing that in. Uh, so, so there's the nonprofit side of coaching and consulting and merging and so on. But you've also had extensive experience coaching uh, and consulting entrepreneurs and owners of startups uh, when you were the venture catalyst right. and business development director at the Advanced Technology Development Center that we talked about affiliated with Georgia Tech. So how similar or how different was your experience coaching and consulting nonprofits versus entrepreneurial leaders? Yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 I see a lot of similarity. Um, and, you know, I, I tell people kind of sometimes that they're both change the world um, leaders. It just happens to be that, you know, if you change the world in nonprofit, you have to keep raising money forever. <laughs> the better you do, the more money you have to keep the raise. In the business world, if you do really well, you start generating profit and cash flow, and you can kind of get those investors off your back, if you will. I mean, there's great investors out there, but it's... Um, mm -hmm. If anything, it's just a little bit harder business model. One of the things I appreciated about Tom Tierney used to be the, the um, worldwide managing partner of Bain & Company, you know, premier strategy firm. And then he, in his kind of second career, um, he started a, a nonprofit consultancy called BridgePan. And I did do some coaching, strategic coaching through BridgePan, kind of bringing my Bain world together um, in a way of an intersection and moving um, and he always told the, the the leaders out there, you know, in the business world, you can have 40% investment in management. In the nonprofit world, you're asked to have 10% investment in management, 10 to 15% investment in management. You call it, they call it overhead. <laughs> Great point. Oh, that's so good. Uh, so um, switching gears a little bit, uh, as you were coaching and you're consulting entrepreneurs, what are you? What are the issues faced mostly by women entrepreneurs versus male entrepreneurs? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of similarities, of course, but, but in general, you know, just the historical um, lack of um, capital, um, you know, in general, there's still, you know, we talk a lot about inequity, but, you know, there's inequity and in, in wealth in women. Um, there's fewer investors that are women. And um, traditionally, women, 40% of all businesses are now led by women. So women are entrepreneurial and um, they are doing a lot and that's growing. And especially women of color, um, the numbers are going off the chart. Uh, but there's still a, a very, very big um, difference in terms of the high growth, high tech venture funded. So only, you know, 40% of of businesses are owned by women. Only 7% of all venture ca capital dollars go to venture funded um, women entrepreneurs. And, and, um, and then the statistics are that women, um, only 40% of the women owned businesses raise any capital at all, whether it be a bank loan or anything. So I, I think the financing world um, is still, there's still a gap there. And it, it, I think it's everything from um, lack of confidence and knowledge of pursuing that to even, you know, when you take other people's money, it changes the game. And I think women do really want, you know, I kind of joked about being the entrepreneur of my life. You know, when founders decide they're going to take other people's money, that's, that was the big conversation. That's a similarity. There was always this conversation with these tech founders of whether I can do a, what's called a bootstrapped 
model where I can self-fund and I can stay in control or whether I'm going to take people's money and frequently it can go sideways and that founder can be going sideways with their investor and they depart and sometimes it can be really, really ugly. And so I think women, um, you know, there's barriers of confidence, barriers of contacts, barriers of even um, the kind of good old boy network of just Know, who's who knows who and the, the connection connectivity and the trust and um that so forth that forms through some of that connectivity the network but then there's also i think women do want to really um be able to shape the culture you know we care about um and men do too but i think you know i think on average that's a lot of times why people leave jobs is and want to form their own it's like they're not finding it in their their company um they don't want to they don't want to have to completely not be who they are or just adjust. So let's go create my own and create my culture and um, and shape it so that it has this. It can be a um, great business place, but also a place where women can thrive. Mm. So how do you coach uh, women leaders of uh, that are entrepreneurs? Mm-hmm. How do you coach them around this confidence mm-hmm. uh, barrier? Well, I think you, you know, it starts with, it starts with education, um, of course, and a connection, connectivity, um, and understanding, and ultimately to what's the convergence between where you want your vision and what pathways there are, and the pros and mm-hmm. cons, and 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 then you know I think that um, there are now the good news is from twenty years ago when I was in this business, there are many more. Um, investors seeing the opportunity and the gap from not investing in in both women and diverse founders and so there's funds that have been started and um a lot of evidence that there's great just like federal reserve is saying you know by not having a more equitable society we're missing on opportunities um i think there's funds out there that's saying we're missing on opportunities to invest in and great ideas and, and new new ideas and then even marketplaces that women and or diverse founders know better um, or they can do any of these things equally. And so, um, you know, now we have here in town, we have Lisa Calhoun and Valor Ventures. That's um, a women-led venture, uh, early stage venture investing. That, that did not exist. There might have been a few angel investors back in the day. Uh, I don't remember a single Atlanta technology angel at the time that was a woman. It was all men. But I know there's been a now a track record of a few successful serial entrepreneurial women giving back. And there's more and more investors that are that are women and even men that that become investors in those funds. I think half of the investors in in her diverse um, fund are women, half are men. And um, wow. so they're learning about the process of investing in and different founders and hopefully gaining um, some track records. So I think, you know, finding some friendly people, some mentors, some coaches, and then ultimately helping them through pitching, uh, connectivity, and, you know, putting them in touch with people that are maybe one step ahead and helping them just like any other founder, build the right management team, find the right match of investors. And 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 is this the right, just like a male founder, could could this be bootstrapped? If it was bootstrapped, would it? Um, what are the risk of it not not being underfunded, or you know that it would only become a couple million dollar or five million versus a hundred million dollar organization, and and helping them just make their 
their choice ultimately. Wow. I, I, I can't imagine um, the benefit that you would bring mm-hmm. into a, a, a woman-owned business mm-hmm. uh, as they're trying to start up, mm-hmm. trying to help them to be able to certainly articulate their vision mm-hmm. and then to be able to uh, plan around that vision and how they're going to go about it and to uh, help them to find the confidence to pursue it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. wow. Uh, so I imagine then that that's a natural bridge for you into becoming an executive coach. How, how did you become an executive coach? Yeah, yeah sure. Well, um, first and foremost, I just love the, the term coach. A good coach does um, know their people. You know, as an athlete, I did, ha- did benefit from some great coaches who could see the potential, could see the potential of individuals and where they could play their part and see how the team can work together and have that um, insight and foresight um, to maximize the potential of, of, of the team. But when I was at the um, incubator, that's when I particularly started coaching. At the end of the day, most, most entrepreneurs and founders do have a very strong foundation. They have strong, um, strong will, and they're not necessarily the most, um, they don't necessarily always seek out, you know, um, coaching and and coaches or advice. And some of them are skeptical because everybody wants to give them advice and advice is free, you know, because everybody wants to hang out with entrepreneurs. So you have all these people coming down and I hang out as an advisor and it's like, you know, um, and we had, you know, we had some good advisors. Um, but, but anyway, so I, I, you know, you have to learn how to appropriately listen and find, you know, help them understand themselves. And there was a lot of that in founders because at the end of the day, it is very personal. And that's where mm-hmm. it's similar with nonprofits too. It's very personal. So where, mm-hmm. how do you know yourself and your own strengths and weaknesses? Uh, what does that mean for bringing in co-founders and um, the relationship with those co-founders? What does that mean for partnering with investors? What does that mean around the shaping of your company, its culture? That self-awareness is is critical to a good founder and and foundational more so than an established corporation. Established corporations, you can kind of mess it up as in, as an individual, but you're not messing up a whole company that is your baby. So mm, the one yes. is just it, it's it's really important to have that awareness, and that was part of my job, and and to be able to, and I was also able to learn and just observe hundreds and hundreds of founders, and our job was to pick out the ones that had the highest potential. Yes, something there was something that's really important in their idea and in their business and technology, but I, I feel like I was particularly good at just seeing the, the radar of the good leadership attributes of people that I could get behind and say, and sometimes I would argue you know, with my colleagues around, no, I see this person and what they're going to make of this business, and I believe in them. And you know, it may not necessarily be perceived on paper as, a, as big of a home run idea, but this person's going to be successful. Um, wow. So I'd make those arguments and, um, you know, and then basically, and then we, we, um, we did facilitate coaching, but our primary method at the time was, well, first of all, individual coaching with the entrepreneur was consulting, coaching, helping them with their business plan, connecting them to investors, connecting them to lawyers, helping them think through how to get their first sale, all those aspects of building their business. You're kind of advising and coaching and a good advisor does mix in coaching, you know, Mm -hmm. um, 
And I didn't have all, I couldn't have all the expertise because I was working with software, sensors, biotech. I mean, again, I was a generalist. I couldn't, I couldn't even pretend to be the expert on all those things like they were. So it kind of put me more in the coaching hat anyway. Um, you know, when you mm-hmm. have an expertise, you typically are more likely to want to share it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh-huh. And, then, and then we just had what we call peer forums. We did facilitate one of the aspects of the incubator that was really, really um, attractive to me was this building a community of, of startups that want to help one another. And we expected when you got access to our state funded subsidized incubator that you were going to contribute to the community. That was kind of an expectation that you come in and you're not you're not going to just get low, you know, good rent and connections for free. You're going to contribute to this entrepreneurial community and helping one another. And so that was our job to also facilitate that wealth of expertise and learning in the environment. And so we all went train went to training to the uh, Edward Lowe Foundation. Um, he was a founder of Kitty Litter, <laughs> and we got trained, we got trained on the method of of uh, peer coaching. And you know we we did that before we got trained, but we got trained on that. And that and then when I fast forward to the to the um, nonprofit center, I did that as well. Wow. Long as well as facilitator workshops and training the Kauffman Foundation. I did their fast track tech coach and consulting. I uh, got certified with that and other ways that I got trained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you raise a, an important point. The difference between consulting and coaching and consulting is much more mm-hmm. expertise sharing, mm-hmm. advising uh, versus coaching, which is really based on the belief that the client really has the answers. Yeah. It's just a matter of helping them to discover and to walk that journey right. towards discovery. Right. Uh, so very, very different. Uh, so now that you're coaching a lot of, of um, women and men, executives and, and uh, all for-profit as well as non-profit and so on, all various sectors. Right. What are the challenges that you're seeing that uh, women especially are facing today? Yeah. Well, um, there's similarities, but I would say that on average, um, and I saw this also back, you know, I've seen that throughout my career, women um, just tend to be harder critics of themselves. So, you know, in our self um, 360 evaluation, the uh, to date, I've never seen a man un- underrate himself compared to his, if anything. There's a handful of them that are way off the charts, rating themselves higher than than um, the people that are giving them feedback. And women um, most often are underrating themselves compared to everybody else. And so that's one thing I'm noticing. And then um, I think that there is a profile that is still, you know, uh, it's interesting. There's a, there's a balance between humility and self-confidence. But I, I think that there's maybe not necessarily as much on average, maybe there's not as much on average ambition or ego and like having the title or putting themselves out there. You know, there's a couple of women that want to like work on their executive presence and feel like their participation is diminished sometimes and or they're not, they're just not thinking about how to play that game and how to get, you know, how to get. They're not, they don't necessarily want to seek credit, but they want to be heard. And, and uh, so that's, a, that's several of the women that I've been coaching have asked to work on that. 
Um, there's maybe one man that's kind of just more of a kind of IT, you know, more of a engineer type that also wants to work on that. But that's a trend. And and then, you know, of course, I think that the coaching sometimes is, you know, do I want this or not? Do I want this next step? And and I, I think it, I think in general, the difference of ambition, especially in the younger generation, is starting to slip a little bit as everybody is seeking a more full and complete life. I mean, I just went to TEDx last week and two of the speakers were talking about being a dad and the, the need for them to step back and be intentional about how they manage their life so that they're not missing dinner with their wife, not missing all the you know, activities of their children and kind of want to have the more complete full life. So I think those things are converging a little bit, but of course I think, and I can relate, you know, I, I, um, I grew up with a stay at home mom and a, you know, overachiever dad trying to kind of figure out how to converge those two in a way that could challenge me, um, from a career perspective intellectually, but also allow me to be, um, I mean, I love being a mom. It wasn't just about me being unselfish, giving to my kids. I just love being able to go to their school and read and be involved in the PTA and be part of my community. So I think those things um, sometimes come up more in the coaching conversations, especially if somebody's thinking about taking a step up. Is this the right step for me? You know, do I want to put my my hat in the ring? Do I, you know, where am I going and do I want to do these extra things? Maybe not investing in themselves as much as they could because that takes more time um, and more attention. But they're, yeah. uh, you know, they're great, great leaders and they play a role. But I think they're, those are some of the trends that I see, commonalities. I would agree with you. Uh, and uh, it's probably um, one of the reasons we talk about life integration versus work-life balance. Right. Work, right. Work-life integration versus work-life balance. Right. Uh, that uh, it's just impossible. This whole work-life balance was a, an illusion. <laughs> there was no such thing. Right. Uh, so when we talked earlier, uh, you mentioned that you've been, and you mentioned it earlier, that you've been the entrepreneur of your own life. Yeah. So what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I think that there's no playbook for that full integration, you know, and um, so I I just feel like, you know, when especially when I was facing, let's say, a decision of Wall Street or Teach for America, that I just decided then that I wasn't going to just put myself in a box that I wasn't. And every time I think about jobs or career, I was like, no, I don't fit in a box. I, I'm not a title. I'm not, I'm not a destination. I'm a creative being that is always searching for um, where I feel called to lead. Um, to be challenged, to use my gifts, and to make an impact, and and I'm not going to let the world just tell me what that should be. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be creative out and resourceful, and get out there and talk to people, and learn and um, navigate, um, and kind of be the navigator versus being the, um, you know. And I and I did found this. I did you know found the, the current business uh, and and partnered. Um, graciously with Turknet Leadership Group and and being the founder, I worked with with uh, other founders, and so it's just um, it's an attribute that I think of just in general in life that I that I just resist people trying to 
pigeonhole me. Like I was just thinking today about my life and the fact that, you know, I, I have such a wide, um, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm privileged. My world is not, my world is not, um, without some isolation from the real world, but, but I do because of my work with nonprofits and, you know, I'm sitting here working with North Fulton housing providers tell, talking to me about, we don't care about affordability in our community. How can we get our community to care about affordability? And, and then, you know, living in a, home, a community where homes are, you know, you know, doubling and tripling in price. And, you, you know, you kind of have these worlds. And then I go to a church where we have homeless individuals in Midtown. I do really like driving down to Midtown in church. I live in Brookhaven and having um, Maurice, who spent most of his life in jail and is founding a homeless nonprofit to give his whole life back. And then we have people like um, Tom Cousins or John Whelan, who own these giant, you know, we have also a diversity of people at my church. And I just uh, feel like, you know, I don't, I'm not a cookie cutter. I don't live in a cookie, you know, I try not to look at, live in a cookie cutter world or a cookie cutting cutter neighborhood. And so that's just my perspective. Yeah, it's a beautiful perspective. And I think it's so important to uh, manage your perspective the way you have um, to reach out and um, to uh, the, in the community and be a part of the full community, which uh, we all live in. So beautifully, beautifully said. Um, so what's your advice to the next generation of uh, Cindy Cheatham's uh, reaching towards that intersection of impact, which you've beautifully right. described, right. and this whole world of leadership? Well, I think, um, you know, my advice is learn and grow, right? And, and my, I've got a daughter who just graduated as a senior at Georgia Tech, and I'm trying to apply, apply my coach skills. My coach, sometimes I put my advisor hat on, but I'm trying to apply my coach <laughs> skills to her as, you know, what I tell her and what I tell young people, and I spoke to a lot of Oglethorpe students because I taught, I taught, um, I was an adjunct faculty there for a couple semesters that one is challenge yourself to grow. You know, um, there should be some discomfort and stretching yourself to really see um, your full potential and um, try new experiences. Try something that may even not be your comfort zone because any of those experiences open your eyes. They, when you have success or even failure, you, you learn something. So one, I just encourage them to not get also get blindsided or get stuck in a, um, to, you know, I remember taking art history in college. I said, why am I taking art history? But I was like, <laughs> I, no, I, I, you know, I was a liberal arts, I, you know, major. And it was like, that was not what I was going to be great at, but I loved it. And it taught me something and everything that I've done that's new and different has just opened my eyes to seeing things differently. And, um, you know, of course I've switched careers a lot and each of those has um, benefited me. So I said, one, like just try new things, challenge yourself, um, apply yourself, you know, find, find where you really want to excel and, and commit hard to that. Um, and my son did that with, with tennis and he could have played college tennis, but I also gave him the permission to, you excelled, but now what do you want to do with this? It's your choice. Um, and he wanted to make a choice to have a more well-rounded engineering degree and not have his college be predominantly tennis. Um, and so that doesn't mean that you have to stay on that path, but excel 
because the process of having to compete at the top also teaches you something. Mm -hmm. How can you survive in that? How can you persevere? Because, you know, you're not necessarily always the top of the food chain. There's always going to be people better in the world. And and um, no matter how achieving you are, there's always going to be somebody better, stronger. And so it's about what you can learn and finding your place and ultimately not comparing yourself, but also stretching yourself to to excel. And then ultimately stepping back from all that, figure out the convergence of what what you love, what you're good at, and what the world needs. Mm. Um, again, kind of drawing this intersecting circles. of, And sometimes you can find what you love um, outside of your career. Um, it doesn't always have to be career. There's vocation and advocation. And so I, 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 and I, I try to encourage people to think holistically, not just about career, but ultimately you do spend a lot of time in your life and your career. I did encourage my daughter to go out and get good training and good experience. And so unfortunately, a lot of community jobs and community work, you don't necessarily have a great, on the one hand, you're thrown in, so you can learn but you don't necessarily have a professional development environment um, or in the best systems and processes sometimes to run and scale. And so I encouraged her to, to um, get some business experience and she did and, um, and, and see where that takes you, but ultimately to find where, again, your intersection of your passion, your skill and, um, and what the world needs where you can make a difference converges. Mm -hmm. And it's a pathway. She just had a, keynote speaker at Georgia Tech tell tell he's the Secretary of State share that he ultimately as a as an immigrant found his passion in trying to help um with as Department of State and he said you know give yourself a little permission to occasionally wander a little bit you know again give yourself permission and grace to make a change um and not see it as a failure because great point not, you know I think people that find themselves stuck um and have never had the experience of getting unstuck it can be it can be tough looking back you don't want regrets so. mm. well i wish you had been my coach i won't say how many years ago as i was entering the the world of work and life uh so thank you so much for uh sharing with uh all of our listeners who are bound to get so much value from listening. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Cindy.